Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children's, or our children's, <laughs> our children to Children's Church. There was an S in there somewhere. And uh, let me open this in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, the way this section ends is such a glorious promise. The new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, we're waiting for that. And in the meantime, Lord, as we're here on this earth, under these heavens, um, we recognize that we have um, a bright future, but also struggles and um, face trials and difficulties. And so, Lord, we count on you to be with us. And Lord, just this week, when uh, Dan and I were at the pastor's cluster for the free church in the area, we heard about many churches in uh, our district who are searching for senior pastors and have been looking in the case of Church of the Canyons for a long time. And Lord, we just want to pray for our sister churches that you would direct them and guide them to the right man to lead them. Lord, that you would connect those churches, those search committees, those um, recruitment agencies, whoever it is, connect those two churches or those churches with the, the men that you know you have set aside to be their pastor and preacher and to show them Jesus. And so have mercy on them. Lord, we thank you for Hope Church in Albuquerque finding, finally finding a pastor. We pray for them that uh, this is a, a great fit, that he will lead them um, to know you better, to see your glory more fully. And so thank you for your mercy to hope, and we pray for those other churches in our district who are struggling as well. And Lord, we're grateful for the fellowship that we have, that you've draw, draw, brought us together uh, to enjoy each other. And thank you for your, your continued mercy to us. We've been through uh, those same struggles looking for pastors in the past, and, and Lord, you've been good to keep this church moving along, and uh, we're just grateful for your your testimony of faithfulness to us. Um, Father, I want to pray for the war in Ukraine, um, as uh, the Ukrainian forces seem to be uh, taking more of an advantage and moving forward. Lord, we just pray that war would come to an end, that, uh, Father, the, the fighting would be brought to a, uh, an end soon, and that there might be peace restored. Uh, Lord, we look forward to the day when war and death and anger are put away. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray for wisdom for those in charge and uh, give them the, the tools they need to wage war correctly, fairly, uh, honorably, and to bring it to a sudden end so that the casualties are minimum. Have mercy, Lord, we pray. And now, Lord, would you please be with us in the study of your word as we hear from your word, from what you have to say for us this morning. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see, to understand, and to um, to believe, to trust in these great, great and precious promises you've put before us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So for those of you who don't know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, was started around 1978 as a radio program, and then it turned into a play, and then it turned into a book, series of books, and then it turned into a video game, and then it turned into a television series, and then most recently it turned into a movie. So I think you could say The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was a successful franchise. It has really gone on quite a bit. Um, I think one of the reasons that it succeeds is because it's science fiction comedy. And science fiction way too often takes itself way too seriously. And so to see Douglas Adams, the author, kind of poking fun at some of this um, science fiction tropes and, and how smart we think we are was, was refreshing. Now, Adams himself was an interesting guy. His relationship with God, um, as you read from the books, um, was complicated. He wasn't an atheist. I don't think he was comfortable saying that God doesn't exist. Um, 
But he wasn't a believer either. He was more of an agnostic. And he wasn't really well persuaded by arguments against God's existence, although he was uncomfortable with God's existence. So he was kind of in this weird spot. Um, I think one of the places that you see his skepticism come through most clearly is in part of the story called The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. So what's the restaurant at the end of the universe? It's exactly what it sounds like. It is a restaurant at the end of the universe. The story is that there's this restaurant built on this planet, which is then encased in a time bubble and sent forward to the very end of the universe when it all comes crashing down. Does that sound implausible to you? Does that sound too far-fetched? Yeah, it did to Douglas Adams too. So as he's explaining it, he kept saying, and most people think this is impossible and he just keeps ramping that up. So if it sounds goofy, it, it kind of is, but he was like, but it's a fun idea, so I'm gonna go with it. So what happens is you pay for a table at this restaurant and you have a wonderful dinner and then you get to see the greatest light show that ever happened, the universe crashing to an end. And so this is how he explains it. Um, there's a, an MC named Max who kind of hosts this evening. And so this is what he says. Max describes it this way. He says, the skies begin to boil. Nature collapses into the screaming void. In 20, second time, 20 seconds time, the universe itself will be at an end. So this cataclysmic event. Um, then Adams kicks in and he says, the hideous fury of the destruction blazed about them. And at that moment, a still small trumpet sounded as from an infinite distance. The trumpet was joined by more trumpets. Over 500 times Max had done this show and nothing like this had ever happened before. So there's a puff of smoke appears and he drew back an alarm from the swirling smoke. And as he did so, a figure slowly materialized inside, the figure of an ancient man, bearded, robed, wreathed in light. In his eyes were stars and on his head, a golden crown. At the back of the restaurant, the stony-faced party from the church of the second coming of the great prophet Zarkon leapt ecstatically to their feet, chanting and crying. A big hand, please, ladies and gentlemen, Max hollered, for the great prophet Zarquan has come. Zarquan has come again. And so everybody's attention turns to the great prophet Zarquan. Zarquan coughed. He peered around the assembled gathering. The stars in his eyes twinkled uneasily. Um, he said, hello. Uh, look, I'm, I'm sorry I'm a bit late. Uh, I've had a ghastly time. All sorts of things kept cropping up at the last moment. He seemed nervous of the expectant, awed hush. He cleared his throat. Um, how are we for time? He said, I, I've got just a minute. And so the universe ended. And so does the chapter. The rest of the page is blank because that's the end of it. So what you see Adam's doing there is he's kind of taking a shot at Jesus' return. And he's saying, well, it's been so long, you know, maybe he's going to appear right at the very end. And, you know, does that count? He's kind of taking a shot at it. That's why he mentioned the church of the second coming. Is he, He's not comfortable with religion, but he's not dismissive of it either. Because notice, Zarquan does show up. Just not when he thought he would. Well, what Peter is going to deal with today is that same kind of skepticism. He's going to talk about scoffers who come with their scoffing. But what we're going to find in the middle of this discussion of these scoffers and their scoffing is tremendous hope. He's going to bring it to a conclusion that's going to make it all fit together. So let's take a look. What he's going to do is he's going to start with where, and then he's going to talk about why, and finally how. So where, where is the promise of his coming? And then next, he's going to say why, why is it taking so long? And then finally, how, how should we then live? 
So that's where he's going to go with it. So here's how he starts. He says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So this is where Peter, I think, draws both of his letters together. He's written these two letters, and these two come together, and he's going to take the application of both of those letters and bring them to us in this portion. So don't forget, 1 Peter was about having hope in the dispersion in the face of suffering. And 2 Peter is about how to grow in grace in the face of false teachers. And what we're going to see is these two are going to come together. Hope and grace are going to come together at the end of this. But we've got to get there first. So we've got to get through the where and why before we get to the how. So the next thing he says is he's, he's bringing this to our minds by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through their, your apostles. So he's saying something here that we have, he's trying to draw our attention to something. He's trying to draw our attention to the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord. And now what I think he's doing here is I think he's pointing us to the scriptures. And I'm not saying that because I'm a curmudgeonly old cessationist who says there can be no more prophecy or anything like that. I'm trying to do it because of Peter, what Peter has done. So remember in chapter one, he talked about having that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did he draw our attention to in that? Did he point out Jesus' glowing face? Did he point out that Moses and Elijah were there? No, the one thing he mentions most clearly is God spoke. And so what he did in that section, he was pointing us to God speaking. And then he mentions no prophecy of scripture is by any man's invention. It is God carrying them along. So I said at that time that he was pointing us to, he says, look, I'm not going to be here forever. So I want you to have this sure source of information about who Jesus is. And he points them to the scriptures. So that's what I think he's doing here when he talks about the um, predictions of the holy prophets. The key to that at that time, we said, was Jesus is the answer to how you read the Bible. It's about him. And so when he says the commandment of the Lord, um, is that just one thing, one command that he gave us? No, he gave us lots of commandments. I think what he means is the commandment as in Jesus has told you everything, this, this teaching of him. How do we get that? Well, we get that through your apostles. In other words, the New Testament. Peter has already said, look, I'm not going to be here forever. So I'm writing this down because I want you to know this. After I depart, I want you to be able to call this to mind. So he writes the scriptures. That's what the apostles did is under their authority, we get the New Testament. So when he says here, this is, um, it, it's by way of reminder of the predictions and the command. I think he's talking about the Bible for us, for our, us in our time. At his time, the Bible wasn't written yet. They were still writing the New Testament. But for us, how can we know this? We can look back. We can't go to Peter's door and ask him, hey, what happened? But he did leave us the scriptures. And so that's where he's pointing us, is he wants us to remember these things um, through the scriptures. Why? What's going on? Well, here's what's happening. He says, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is actually a fairly modern argument. So you guys believe Jesus is going to return? Dude, it's been 2,000 years. When are you going to give up on that? He's not coming back. He was wrong. That scoffing is nothing new. It's something that Peter dealt with. It's something that's come up repeatedly through history. But notice here what they're denying. What they're, they're scoffing at is, where is the 
promise of his coming. It is casting aspersions on God's promises. And what did Peter tell us about these promises? He said that Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him, and that through his precious and very great promises, that's how we hold on to them. And so now what he's saying is these, these false teachers are coming and they're trying to throw aspersions on his promise. This is one of the greatest promises we have. Jesus said he would return, and he will. But the scoffers are throwing hay at it and saying, ah, he's not going to return. He's not coming back. So they say that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. In other words, nothing's changed. Life continues on. Nothing's different. Peter says, wait a minute. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact. So these, these false teachers, they're not ignorant of something. They deliberately overlook something. And what does he point them to? He says, well, what they're overlooking is, all right, so God created, the heavens existed, and then God created the earth, and he formed it out of water and through water by the word of God. So there's two elements there. There's water that the world was, was made through and formed by, and then there was the word of God. So in the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. And one of the things he said, let there be, is he said, let the, the waters be parted and the earth show up. So he parts the waters and here's the earth. That's what Peter is appealing to is chapter, Genesis chapter 1. So here you have water, you have the word of God. Now where he goes with that is he says they're forgetting that, they're ignoring that fact, and by means of these, the world that existed then was deluged with water and perished. So the water that God used to form the earth, he then sent to wipe out humanity. So things haven't continued every way, um, the same way they have since the very beginning. We run into uh, Genesis chapter 6, where suddenly there's a flood, and humanity has gotten so evil and so wicked that God wipes them out. Now, we heard that before. He mentioned Noah earlier, and what he said is that God did that, but he preserved Noah through it. So these false teachers who are throwing aspersions on our hope, our promise that Jesus is going to return, because everything's the same, they're... You're, they're not the same. There's historical precedent to say God is going to judge wickedness. God is going to judge that. So it's by means of these two things, the water that God created the world through and the word of God that he deluged the water or deluged the world with water and they perished. So that's the warning to those false teachers. But it's a promise to us. And we'll see that in a minute. We'll, we'll come back to that, that promise in a moment. He said, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that are now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he's reminding them again, there is a day coming when judgment is going to arrive. But the promise for us there is he says that they're stored up for fire. So Genesis chapter 9, that is the great Noahic covenant. God comes and makes a covenant with Noah. He puts his rainbow in the sky. And he says, every time I see that rainbow, I'm going to remember that I promised I'm not going to destroy the world with flood again. So we're not looking forward to a second flood. It's not going to happen. What is going to happen is even more dramatic. The, the world has been um, kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly for fire. And so he's going to use that, that uh, illustration over and over again to talk about this day of judgment that's coming. So that is that question of where, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter says, it's still there. 
just because you don't buy it doesn't mean it's not there. He has made this promise. He's, he's judged ungodliness before. He's going to do it again. It's going to be global. It's going to be a catastrophe. For us, it's a eutastrophe. You ever heard that word? I think it was J.R.R. Tolkien quoted it. Not a catastrophe. In other words, everything is horrible, but a eucatastrophe, which is everything is going to be great. So for them, it's bad. For us, it's going to be good. So here's the next question. Peter anticipates this right off the bat. Look, their objection is everything's continued since the beginning. Well, no, it hasn't. But why is it taking so long? Why is the world continuing on like this? So uh, beginning in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. So they intentionally overlook this fact. You believers, don't you guys overlook this. Don't make that same mistake. And then he calls us beloved. I kind of skipped that at the beginning, but here he says beloved. He actually calls us beloved four times in this section. So this is not his hellfire and brimstone. This is him talking to us and saying, you guys, I have some tremendous news for you. He's being encouraging. So don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. In other words, God is not in time. He is not bound by time. God existed before time existed. And so with him, he's looking at the whole laying out of all of history. He sees it all in one shot. We, however, are stuck in the middle of it. We experience it literally as we go through it. So for God, he's not in a big hurry and he's not late. He's not Zarquan showing up at the last minute. He is accomplishing things according to his purpose. It may seem long to us. But God, he says, is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Again, we go back to the theme of promises. We have to hold on to this. It is his great and precious promise that he will judge wickedness. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Here's his point. So why is he taking so long? I've said this before. My Calvinism is God does stuff on purpose. God is waiting. He is taking his time on purpose, and here's why. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has a purpose in delaying his coming. God has a purpose in delaying the fire that's going to consume all of this. So why is it taking so long? Because that's God's plan. He wants all of you to come to repentance and none of you to perish. That's his goal. That's his plan. What he's talking about here is he's talking about the the inclusion of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. That's from Romans chapter 11, where he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there is this group of people that God has talked about. Remember, Jesus or Paul earlier said, make your calling and election sure. And so that's, that's God's people. He wants all of his people to come in. So he's delaying until that happens. So um, waiting for that. And then Jesus himself said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So is God slow in fulfilling his promise? No, but he is patient. And he's waiting. He's, he's, he's leading us to that. So that's where he's taking us right now. He's got a purpose in this. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants them to come to repentance. And then he says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief 
and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. So he ends that with this, this picture of the end, this, this time when the Lord comes and judgment falls on the world. It, it's it's the, the day of judgment. So he says that it will come like a thief. And what he means by that is we don't get a two weeks notice. Okay, you guys, by the way, Jesus is coming back in two weeks. And so you've got two weeks to go ahead and you know finish what you're doing and repent, and then you can be saved. What Peter is warning us here is it's going to come at a day we don't expect it. And when it does, it's too late. So repent now. Now is the day. Now is the time. Come to the Lord now. God is patient, but there is a day coming when it will end. So if you're looking at this and your eschatology is all millennial, in other words, there's no, Jesus doesn't return and reign on the earth. He returns and judgment comes. This is, man, this is it, isn't it? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and uh, judgment will happen. The works that are done on the earth will be exposed. That's the day of judgment. Jesus returns, it's over. That's, that's the all-millennial position. The problem with that is you have to say that the day of the Lord equals Jesus' return. And I don't think that's the biblical picture. I think the day of the Lord is more than just a 24-hour period. It is that, that, that cataclysmic event at the end of time. And so Peter can step back and look at the whole thing and say, that's what's going on. So if your eschatology is more dispensational, in other words, Jesus is going to come and take his church out of the world, then this fits. He comes like a thief in the night. And, and that was there was a movie about that, the thief in the night, that, that Jesus comes and he takes his church away. But that doesn't really fit either because the heavens will pass away with a roar when that thief comes. And in a dispensational eschatology, that's not how it lines up. So maybe that's not it. What about mine, historic pre-mill? On the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And I run into the same problem. I have to sneak, they say, a, a, a millennial reign in there, a thousand years of Jesus on earth between these events. But I don't. I don't have to worry about that because when I see the day of the Lord, I don't see that as one event. I see that as a period of time, not one 24-hour period, but, but the end times. So what will happen is Jesus will return in a time we don't know. He will come back. And then he'll reign. And then at the end of that, Satan will be released. There'll be a revolt and judgment will come. So the day when, when those events happen, I don't know. I'm not sure when it happens. But the promise is it will. And the threat is it will come like a thief in the night. We're not going to know it. It's just going to happen. So be ready. Today is the day. Now is the time that you should seek repentance. So even this is contained in that promise of Jesus' return. So then he says, well, if that's true, if Jesus is coming back, if judgment is going to fall on this world, how then should we live? How should we behave in light of this? So in verse 11, he says, since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So since this is true, since Jesus is going to return, since this earth is going to pass away and be made new, how should we live in the meantime? And this is where I said he's going to bring 1 Peter and 2 Peter together. Because what he's saying is, 
if, if this is the condition of the world now, if we're in the dispersion, if we're dispersed, if we're scattered, we haven't found our homeland yet, how can we have hope in this? How can we stand in this? If we're going to face suffering and persecution and opposition, how can we do that? Well, read First Peter. He was pointing us to this promise of the coming of the day of the Lord. We can endure that because there is a homeland waiting for us. It's coming to us. It will be here. So in the meantime, we can look at this and say, yeah, the suffering is wrong, and they shouldn't be beheading Christians in Egypt, and they shouldn't be throwing um, uh, closing churches in China and those kind of things. But nobody gets away with that. The works on this earth will be exposed. It will all be laid out. People are going to see it. Jesus is going to see it. So that's how we can have hope in the dispersion. And what about how we grow in grace in the face of these false teachers? Well, we hang on to those promises, including the promise that he's going to return. Because now these false teachers will be exposed for who they really are. They'll be held up before the entire world and shown to be shams. And Jesus will deny them. So how should we live in the meantime? We should live in lives of holiness and godliness. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 1, verse 3, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He returns to that theme here. How should we live? Well, we should live in life and godliness. How do we do that? We've got everything we need through the knowledge of him, through his great and precious promises. So verse 12 gets a little tricky. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. I get the waiting for. We don't have much of a choice but to wait for the, the coming of the day of God. How do we hasten it? How do, we, how do we make the day of God come quicker? How do we hasten the day? Well, I kind of hinted at it. We do it by doing what Jesus told us to do, right? He said that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, so go make disciples of the nation. That's where the Gentiles are. Jesus said the, the kingdom of, of uh, the gospel of this kingdom will be preached to all the nations. And then the end will come. So how do you get the end to come? You go preach the gospel to all the nations. That's what you do. That's how we live as as exiles in this land, waiting for a better homeland, is by calling our brothers and sisters to come and join us. So that's what we're doing here is we're taking the gospel to the nations. The Strombergs are in Birmingham. They are preaching the gospel to exiles in, in that land. And we're there to support them and, and, and encourage them and help them do that. Bob Burris goes to Africa to teach pastors how to read the Bible well so that they can then make disciples of those in their nation. So we're doing it directly through the Strombergs. We're doing it indirectly through Bob. And then we do it ourselves as we, by the way, are in a nation. And we preach the gospel to those around us. And we meet people and we share our hope in Jesus Christ with them. That's how we hasten the day of coming. It's not by planting vineyards in, in Israel or something. That's not the point. The message we've been given is, you guys, this is what you'll do. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. When you've done that, then the end will come. So hasten, wait for, and hasten that coming. Be busy about what you've been given to do. That's what he wants us to be busy about. That's what he wants us to, to focus on in this is those very things. And then he ends in verse 15, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What a tremendous promise that is. This world as it is, is not the final state. So 
when Douglas Adam talks about Zarquan showing up at the last moment before the universe fizzles out or explodes, he thinks it continues in that same state. It's the other way around. When Jesus shows up, the universe ends because Jesus showed up, not Jesus shows up because the universe ended. We have this, this period waiting, this new heavens and the new earth. So this earth will be transformed. It will be burned up. The idea of burning is purification, is, is scorching away. So that's why there's a judgment that's attached to that. We're waiting for that new heavens and that new earth. Younger folks, you don't get it yet. Body's still functioning well. You're, you're, you're indestructible. You know, go all day, never get tired, eat anything you want, go to sleep. Us older folks, we know what this is, means. We're waiting for that new heavens and that new earth. His body's wearing out. If I have pizza, I'm up till three in the morning. I mean, when I was, you know, 19 and indestructible, I could eat it and go right to bed. Things wear out. We get tired of having to fix the house, fix the car, fix the, the people around us, fix everything. It's wearing out. We're opposed. We're oppressed. There's people who actually don't like us, who, who want to bring trouble our way. And yet, what our hope is, where our hope is fixed is, we have the promise of, uh, we have his promise for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And guess what? you will dwell in that new heavens and that new earth. So that, that picture of growing in grace, and what I said to means to grow in grace is to be conformed more and more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Eventually, we will be in a place where righteousness dwells, and it will be natural, normal, and right that we're there because we have been conformed to his image. So his hope here is press on. Don't let it, don't get slack. Don't slow down. God has given you everything you need for a godly life. Embrace it. Wrestle through it. Struggle. Know that you'll have advances and setbacks, but keep pressing on. Why? Because of what awaits us. That new heavens and that new earth. John gives us a snapshot, just a, the, the vaguest of picture. It doesn't get into a lot of detail, but the most striking thing to me is, here's this city that is the bride of Christ. And right in the center of it, is God and the Lamb. And what's not there? A temple. There's no walls to keep us out. There's no veils to keep God hidden. He's just there, right in the midst of us. And that's only possible because that's where righteousness dwells. Sin, death, Satan, hell, all of that has already been cast out. That's the future that awaits us. And so that's what we want to hasten. That's what we want to come about more sooner than later. And so that's why we need to be engaged with the mission of God. That's what he's called us to do. That's why he's left us this way, because he's got this mission. So as sorrows come our way, as struggles, as difficulties, as we deal with false teachers, as we deal with difficulty and all of that, we have this promise that God himself will wipe away our tears. Matthew Smith has a song called God Himself. And one verse he says, in the day when earthly weakness weighs your weary spirit down, all around you seems a burden and all above you seems a frown. God himself will dry your tears. God himself will soothe your fears. The day of the Lord is coming. This is one of the great and precious promises that he has left for us. 
And it's one of the ways that we're going to make it, that we're going to actually struggle through, that we will grow in grace is by hanging on to these great and these precious promises. So I've said before, I'll say again, we need more eschatology. So whatever your eschatology is, we need to dig into that. We need to hang on to what, what Paul says in Titus is our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we need more of. That's what we need to focus on. Maybe not so much the details of how we get there so much, although, you know, you got to wrestle through that too. But don't forget the end goal here is not, I got it figured out when Jesus is going to return. I figured out which day of the week it's going to happen on. And that's not the point. The point is, he's coming. Hope in that. That's the promise that you can hang on to. When you face opposition, when you face difficulty, when some you see some big-haired teacher on television saying something absolutely horrible or come across some bozo on YouTube saying something outrageous, you can look at that and go, but there's a day coming when we will dwell in righteousness. And we can hope in that and know they're not getting away with it. We have a great God and Savior, and he's coming back for us. So let's close in prayer. Lord, would you stir in us as way of reminder uh, that what our great apostle Peter has been telling us is that there is a day coming. You've demonstrated it in the past. You showed us in the flood of Noah that you will judge unrighteousness, that it doesn't get past you. You're not ignorant of it. And Lord, though it has been thousands and thousands of years since that event, we know that you're not slow to fulfill your promise. That in the meantime, you promised that it would, you would not destroy the world by a flood again. And we're waiting, looking forward to the day when you do use fire to purify. So Lord, in the meantime, when we're in the midst of that, Lord, we pray that you would bring all of your people to repentance. Those who know you now and those who don't know you yet, Lord, would you bring them all to repentance. And we pray that we would be engaged in our part to hasten the coming of that day as we wait for our great God and Savior. Lord, thank you for this promise and help it to be real in our hearts and minds. We ask in Christ's name, amen.